Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are continuing our survey through the Gospel of Luke, which tells us, it tells the story of God's salvation through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of King Jesus. And according to the church calendar, today is Transfiguration Sunday. The transfiguration of Christ marked a turning point in His ministry on earth. Following His transfiguration, Jesus began a journey towards Jerusalem, where He would be crucified. So the church remembers the transfiguration on the Sunday prior to the season of Lent, a season which teaches us to carry our own crosses. Lent is thus bookended by revelations of Jesus' glory. Immediately prior to Lent, we see the glory of Christ transfigured on the mount, and immediately following Lent, we see the glory of Christ resurrected from the grave. And so today, we get a sneak peek at the glory of Christ. This is a teaser trailer. And then uh, we begin looking forward, even now, to Easter Sunday, where the glory of Christ, as it were, hits theaters worldwide. That's, that's more laughter than I thought I would get on that, actually. There could be an entire seminary course on these nine verses. There is so much meaning packed into the details of this account. There are pregnant references to Old Testament passages that would, that would take several hours even to read. Okay, so Luke is expecting a lot from his readers, and in particular, he assumes we know a lot about the lives of Moses and Elijah. So today, within a single sermon, the difficulty really is in determining what not to say. We, we will only be scratching the surface. Let's begin by introducing Moses and Elijah. In the book of Exodus, God redeems the nation of Israel out of captivity and oppression. Through the leadership of Moses, God leads the people of Israel through a baptism in the Red Sea and then into the wilderness. And they journey in the wilderness for 40 years. And at some point, they come to Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai, where Moses meets with God. After that, Israel builds a tent for God, It was called a tabernacle. We have a picture of that, actually. Well, a rendering of that. (laughs) Right. The tabernacle was a mobile temple, the dwelling place of God. And over the tabernacle, there was a perpetual pillar of smoke, a cloud representing and manifesting God's presence. Okay, what about Elijah? Elijah also confronted a tyrant and fled into the wilderness. He journeyed in the wilderness for 40 days, and he too comes to Mount Sinai, where he too meets with God. And so Moses and Elijah both meet with God on Mount Sinai. Now, there, there are several more details that connect the story of Elijah to the story of Moses, but for our purposes today, the point is this. Elijah is a new Moses, and Jesus, according to Hebrews 3, is the greater Moses. And so here on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John witness a conversation between Moses, a new Moses, and the greater Moses. 
And Moses himself actually teaches us to anticipate a future prophet who will be like him. Deuteronomy 18, this is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. To him you shall listen. Today, in verse 34, God the Father will speak out of a cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Moses, a new Moses, and the greater Moses. Let's, let's read beginning in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were, very, were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So, Jesus takes Peter and John and James up on a mountain to pray, and as Jesus is praying, his face is altered. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, says that his face shone like the sun. This is another reference to Moses, whose face shone whenever he met with God. He had to wear a veil. However, this is fundamentally different than Moses. Moses' face did not shine from within. Light did not emanate from Moses. Moses' face shone because he had been in the presence of God. The shine on Jesus' face, however, was not derived from anything external to himself. The shine on Jesus' face came from within. And so Jesus is not meeting with God on a mountain like Moses and Elijah met with God on a mountain. Jesus is the God who met with Moses and Elijah on the mountain. Moses' face is to the moon what Jesus' face is to the sun. One is a reflection of light. The other is the source of light. So again, we have Moses, a new Moses, and the greater Moses, who also happens to be God himself. Now, let's look at this word departure in verse 31. And behold, two men were walking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word for departure here is the Greek word exodus. That ring any bells? Jesus is going to accomplish another exodus. And that's partly why he holds counsel here with Moses and a new Moses. The God of Israel has taken on flesh in order to lead the nation of Israel out of captivity into a new covenant, into a new world. Luke is doing a lot with this passage, as I said, but this one is right over the plate. Exodus. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem in order to accomplish a new exodus. Here's the question. Exodus from what? The nation of Israel was already dwelling in the land of promise. The problem was that the land was occupied by the Roman Empire. The people of God were under Roman rule under oppression. 
and they were longing to be set free. They wanted Jesus to drive out the enemy. But strictly speaking, they weren't hoping for an exodus because they were already living where they wanted to live. So, to what exodus is Luke referring? I believe Luke is referring to the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, all of which took place in Jerusalem. Think back to the story of Moses. Number one, Moses instituted the Passover. The people of God slaughtered a substitutionary, spotless lamb in order to escape judgment. This foreshadowed the crucifixion of Christ, who suffered judgment in our place. Number two, Moses led the people out of Egypt. The people of God were set free from the oppression of an evil master. This foreshadowed the resurrection of Christ, which set God's people free from the oppression of Satan, sin, and most obviously, death. And number three, Moses ascended into God's presence. At Mount Sinai, Moses ascended into God's presence in a cloud and ushered in a new covenant. This foreshadowed the ascension of Christ, who ascended into God's presence in a cloud and ushered in a new, new covenant, the new covenant. So Jesus leads us not merely out of slavery to Pharaoh, but out of slavery to Satan, sin, and death. He leads us out of an old creation with an old covenant into a new creation with a new covenant. Okay, let me, let me review that for the sake of clarity. Number one, the crucifixion of Christ. Like the blood of the Passover lamb, we are covered by the blood of Christ. There is no condemnation for us because there was condemnation for him. Number two, the resurrection of Christ. Just as Pharaoh was put to shame, the resurrection of Christ has put Satan to open shame. We are no longer servants of sin. We are servants of the Most High God. And number three, the ascension of Christ. Like Moses at Mount Sinai, Christ ascended into glory where he sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Moses ascended and then Moses descended. Christ ascended to take his throne and he's sitting there right now. So are, are we still waiting on Jesus to descend? No. And yes, we'll get to that in a bit. Let's continue reading in verse 33. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Okay, the word translated as tent in verse 33 is another important Greek word. Anybody want to guess what it refers to? Boom, the tabernacle. And so Jesus is preparing to accomplish an exodus, and Peter offers to build him a tabernacle. Luke is not going to allow us to miss these themes. 
Peter and James and John have just witnessed something incredible. Glory is pouring out of Jesus' face. And he's standing on a mountain talking to a couple of Old Testament VIPs who have been dead for centuries. This is incredible. And so Peter responds by offering to build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. He wants them to stay. More specifically, though, Peter expresses his desire to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a Jewish festival which looked back to God's provision in the wilderness and looked forward to God's ultimate deliverance. And so here was Peter, standing in the presence of Moses, a new Moses, and the greater Moses, on the cusp of a new exodus, suggesting a feast to remember God's past deliverance and to anticipate God's future deliverance. Peter's impulse is exactly right. And yet Luke says that Peter didn't know what he was saying. So what what did Peter not understand? Peter did not understand that the tabernacle was already right there in front of him. Jesus was the tabernacle. He was the dwelling place of God on earth. And this is confirmed by what happens next. Verse 34, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Okay, to understand what's happening here, we're going to have to jump back again to the history of the tabernacle. The people of Israel first constructed the tabernacle after Moses descended from Mount Sinai. The tabernacle served as a mobile makeshift temple while Israel was wandering around in the wilderness. However, once Israel entered into the land of promise, and once God's anointed king was on the throne, the makeshift tabernacle gave way to a more permanent temple. And so the the cloud of glory descends upon the tabernacle, Jesus, the tabernacle that is Jesus. But here's the shocking part. Peter, James, and John enter into the cloud. The cloud of glory descended upon all four men. And so Jesus was the tabernacle, the place on earth where the fullness of God was pleased to dwell but the tabernacle would soon be replaced by the temple. And what, or who, is the new covenant temple? The church. We are. We are the temple. And we have been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Peter, James, and John are fellow cornerstones of a new temple, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And this idea is reinforced in the resurrection. How so? Well, think back to Moses at Mount Sinai. After Moses ascended into the cloud, he descended with the law written on tablets of stone. But when the resurrected Christ ascended, he ascended to take his throne, and he did not thereafter descend. So again, are we still waiting on him to descend? In that sense, no. 
Because just as Moses descended with the law written on tablets of stone, the Holy Spirit descended upon the church to write the law on hearts of flesh. The Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost to fill the new temple with glory. Moses ascends and descends to build the tabernacle. Jesus ascends to take his throne, and the Holy Spirit descends to build the temple. The church is the new temple, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Again, there is so much more we could say. We're we're scratching the surface here. But what does all this mean for us? Gosh, what does it not mean for us? Where do we even begin to work out the implications of this? Theologian Kevin Van Hooser had this to say about the transfiguration. The transfiguration provides program notes, as it were, for understanding the whole narrative sweep of Scripture. We talked about Moses, the new Moses, and the greater Moses. There's also a sense in which Jesus is meeting with Moses and Elijah as representatives of the law and the prophets. Or in other words, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the portion of the Bible written prior to Jesus. And so we could also talk about the transfiguration in terms of Jesus, the Word of God made flesh, manifesting His glory through counsel with the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. Later on in Luke chapter 24, the the resurrected Jesus teaches the Bible to His disciples. Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. The law and the prophets, the Scriptures testify to Jesus. And when we hold counsel with Moses and Elijah, so to speak, when we, when we hold counsel with the law and the prophets, when we hold counsel with the Bible, we get to see the transfigured face of Jesus. The Bible actually says this about, his, about itself. We're going to be jumping around a little bit, so lean in, hang with me. We're almost done. Second Peter chapter 1. Verses 16 to 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice, this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is talking about the transfiguration. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Did you, ca- did you catch what Peter's saying? He's, he's using the transfiguration event to defend Scripture. 
He's saying the words of the Bible are not just manufactured truths. He says, we are actual eyewitnesses of the glory of Christ. We know that he is truly the Son of God and truly the King of kings because we saw his glory on the holy mountain. We didn't hear about his glory. We saw his glory. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Here, the Apostle Paul uses a metaphor. The veil that Moses wore to cover his shining face is a metaphor for how the Jewish people read the Scriptures. The Jewish people read the Scriptures through a veil, and the veil is only lifted when they interpret the Scriptures through the lens of Christ. Verses 14 to 18. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That's the, that's the same Greek word as transfigured. We are being transfigured into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So just like Moses, we can be transfigured by looking into the face of Jesus Christ. And we see his face when we read the Bible. When we learn to interpret the Bible through the lens of Christ, the veil is removed and we behold his face. So according to Peter and Paul, the transfiguration event reveals a new way of reading the Bible. The ultimate aim of the Bible has been disclosed to us in the shining face of Jesus. The Bible is where Jesus is revealed. The Bible is the mountain we climb to see the face of Jesus. The Bible is a medium through which Jesus transfigures us from one degree of glory to the next. So, when we ask your parish to organize a Bible study, or when we promote a Sojourn Academy class, we're not trying to add things to your calendar. We want to help you see the face of Jesus in the Bible because that's how Christians get transfigured. We want to lead you up the Mount of Transfiguration. We want you holding counsel with Moses and Elijah and Jesus. When we witness something glorious, our faces are transfigured. We see this um, in the face of a child on Christmas morning. We see this in the face of a new dad coming out of the delivery room. It's a girl. We see this in the faces of people at a symphony. And every once in a while, we, we can see this when someone sees something in the Bible that they hadn't seen before. Or when someone sees an old truth with new eyes. Oh, that our church would have more of that. Shining faces beholding the glory of Christ in the Bible. Gosh, I'm, I'm the first person who needs to hear this. I get paid to sit in the scriptures every day, every week. And yet, I'm, I'm one of the most stoic people in our church. 
that one was not a joke. <laughs> no, it, it, do, it doesn't compute. I am in need of transfiguration. And thankfully, the, the Bible promises to do that in me from one degree of glory to the next. And this applies to your life as well. When we neglect to behold the face of Jesus in the Bible, we, we will tend to behold other less glorious things. Often we, we end up beholding ourselves. And so rather than being transfigured by glory, we are disfigured by sin. When we behold things that are not glorious, our faces will begin to reflect the anger and anxiety and greed and ingratitude that is inside of us. And nobody wants that sort of disfiguration. We all want transfiguration, right? That's the sort of person you want to be, joy-filled, not self-centered and bitter. And so let's, let's pursue transfiguration together in community by beholding the face of Jesus in the Bible. Let's prioritize that. You know, the, the exodus of Jesus was accomplished in Jerusalem, but the exodus of his people is still underway. We have been set free from an evil master. We have been baptized into a holy nation. We have had the law written on our hearts. We have entered into the land of promise. Our king is on the throne, but the temple is still being built. All the nations of the world are being built into a worldwide temple. And one day, the Lord will descend. The Lord will descend and dwell amidst his people forever. In that day, transfiguration will give way to resurrection, the lesser glory for the greater. And until then, we make disciples and we multiply parishes and we plant churches. We build the temple. So as we step into the season of Lent, let's remember the sneak peek of Jesus' transfiguration. Pray with me. This is from the Book of Common Prayer. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.